0: So if you have a Bible, Hebrews six is where we're going to be. Um, if you've got a paper version, that's great. If you don't have a paper version, if you got it on your phone or on a tablet, you can pull it out. Um, it, you should have the just just my soapbox. Um, you should have the Bible on every digital device you have. It's free. Okay? It doesn't cost you anything. You just have to download the thing. Um, and, and if you think you have nothing else to be thankful for today, you should be thankful that there's a church in Oklahoma City that pays all the royalty fees for you to have the Bible on your phone. The church called Life Church, um, They their church single-handedly foots the bill, because I don't know if you know this, Bibles are copyrighted. I hope we can have a conversation about the efficacy of that. But um, Bibles are copyrighted, and uh, and they pay for it. So that It's one of the top downloaded apps on uh, uh, iPhone or Android. Anyways, not important. Here we go. Here, Hebrews 6. Um, Let me read to you. Hebrews 6. We're going to start in verse 19. We're going to read five verses. And here's what I suspect by the time we get to the end of the five verses. You're going to go, what? (laughs) Okay. And if that happens, that's totally fine, okay? We're going to read these five verses. There's going to be a lot that's going to go on in these five verses. And then we're going to uh, we're gonna go back and we're going to talk about what's going on. So, so when I'm done reading, if you're kind of like, uh, just don't tune out. Stick around. We'll figure it out together, okay? So here we go. Uh, verse 19, it says this. This hope... We have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Okay, there's um, all kinds of temple imagery going on here and priestly imagery that's um, really powerful. We just don't have the time to go through. Verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. He remains a priest forever, your translation might say. Here's the thing Um, all of us have boxes, we have boxes. We have boxes that help us tell ourselves, it's a story we tell ourselves about how the world exists and how the world works, right? Sometimes, some people, you might call it a worldview um, or a lens through which you see the world. But we all, as humans, we have limited capacity, we are not um, all-knowing, and so we have a box that tells us how to experience the world and how we expect the world to work, and we all have... Boxes, some of our boxes are smaller than other people's boxes, right? Like, my box is big enough that my box believes there's space for the Dallas Cowboys to win a Super Bowl again in my lifetime, right? Some of you, your box isn't that big for such a fantasy dream, right? Some of you, right, are like me, okay? If you're in the woods, right, you have a box of how the world works and, and what's supposed to happen in the world and what's normal, and if you're in the woods at night, and it's dark, and you hear some, some branches cracking in your box, what's going on, the way you filter that, and you put everything in, all the equation, what pops out, what fits in that box is that there is 100% a serial killer that's ready to murder you. Right? That's my box. Some of you, you think it's Bigfoot, and that's your box, because your box fits the Harry man is lost in the woods and nobody's ever seen before, which I would contest to you is just my uncle without a shirt on, um, running around the woods. And You would believe me if you ever saw my uncle without a shirt on. I don't know why you would. But um, we all have boxes, and, and, and what we do with these boxes is we say, this is what is possible, and this is what is not possible. And, and so when we experience <laughs> things in the world, we say, well, it couldn't possibly have been this way, couldn't possibly have happened this way it must be this because we just don't have the capacity to take all, all the information about how the world works we have boxes and he, here's the thing when it comes to our faith we have a box for god all of us do it's not good or bad, it's just who we are, right? We have to, God is, God is smarter than you, he's bigger than you, he's eternal, he, he, his brain, scripture says, um, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, and so we just don't have, if we spend all the time trying to think about who God is and what he does, and his character and all this kind of thing, like our brains could not contain it. Right? If we had the ability to fully describe who God was and, and, and explain every way that God was going to interact with his creation throughout all of eternity, that would actually, that would make us smarter than God because we'd be able to predict what God's going to do in every possible situation. And let me tell you, uh, if you're smarter than God, we're all in trouble, right? Because I've met you, and we're in trouble, So what we do instead is we say, here's how God works. When these things happen, God does this. But what happens, what happens in our lives when God works in a way that doesn't fit in the box we've created for him? Uh, uh, There's a book recently came out. I love the title. I I haven't actually read it because um, it has a lot of words. And um, the book is called The Disobedient God. Isn't that a great title? Right? Not disobedient as it's like morally wrong. But the question is, what happens when the way we think God should do something doesn't happen? What happens when we've created a paradigm that says, this is the way God works in the world always? God will never do this, or God will always do this. Here's the funny thing about um, all of us. We all find ourselves theologically in like these little camps where we've created this box and say, God will always do this, or God will never do this. And uh, um, if, if you're in this box, right, and you see people in this box, you have a name for them. You call them heretics, Right? And if you're in this box and you see people in this box, you say, well, you just don't have enough faith, right? But we all have a box. And what happens when God shows up in a way that doesn't fit in your box? All throughout scripture he does, over and over again. You remember the story of Jonah? Didn't fit in his box over and over and over again. God tells him to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, my God wouldn't send me to Nineveh. Well, his God does send him to Nineveh. Right, and then when God shows grace to Nineveh, Jonah gets upset because he says, "My God wouldn't show grace to these wicked people." God shows up; he doesn't fit in his box over, over, and over again. God shows up in ways that don't. so. What do we do? This is the question that the writer of Hebrews is confronting. Because when Jesus shows up, there's there's a lot of things about Jesus that don't fit in the box. Right? When Jesus showed up, um, the, the Pharisees, a lot of times you like to throw the Pharisees under the bus, if you don't know them, they're, they're kind of the perpetual antagonist of the gospels.? Right? As you read the story of Jesus, they're like always the bad guys over there like scheming, We're going to catch you now, Jesus, right? And they're over there coming up with crafty things to do. And the, the Pharisees, though, the Pharisees, he, here's, a, here's a fair assessment that a uh, 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 prediction I will make, OK? A Pharisee in Jesus' day knew the Old Testament, knew the prophecies about Jesus abundantly better than any single person in this room or watching online. They knew the, (laughs) sometimes you're like, well, you know, um, I think, wasn't there a story? Wasn't there a story about a woman who jabbed a a, a rod through, wasn't there a story somewhere in the Bible about this And the Pharisees would be like, oh, no, let me just recite to you from memory the very story you're talking about. Like, they knew Scripture so well. And because they knew, and they were so confident in Scripture, they had created this really clear box. And to them, you know what they'd say? If you said, well, what's the Messiah going to look like? They would tell you. And then you know what they would say? They would say, Scripture is clear. And then you know what happens? (laughs) Jesus shows up. And what do they say? Nope. Scripture is clear. Ain't happening that way. Right? Because God showed up in a way that didn't fit in their box. In fact, Scripture tells us that Jesus, God, is going to show up in all kinds of ways all the time that don't fit in our box. Like, this should just be a normal expectation for us as we walk in our faith is that we're constantly having to adapt to and move and and change the boundaries of our box, because here's the truth. If God doesn't fit in your box, the problem isn't God. It's your box. It says in Scripture, it says that Jesus will be a stumbling block to many. Because we, sometimes, full of faith and confidence, will come saying, this is how God's going to do it. And God shows up in a way that doesn't fit in our box. And this is exactly the tension that's going on in the book of Hebrews. Because, you see, throughout the book of Hebrews, the the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell um, the the Jewish people, the people who have become Christians who were historically, religiously Jewish and who are ethnically and culturally Jewish, how Jesus fits in this whole story of the Jewish story, right? And so he starts and he says, you know, Jesus is better than the angels, right? Right? And probably first century Jews go, okay, he's a Messiah. Yeah, better than the angels, right? They were just part of his armies, right? He says, Jesus is better than the promised land. And they go, uh, okay, I mean, maybe right now, right? Because Rome's here, it's been a hot summer. Like maybe right now he's better. And they say, well, Jesus is better than the law. And they go, oh, wait, wait a second. The law is who we are. It defines us. And he, and he says, no, it gets better. He's better than the priests. And they go, oh, how could that be? And see, there's a really pragmatic problem that the writer of Hebrews is trying to resolve here because they had a really firm definition. They had answers for who could be a priest. And did you hear what he just said? He says Jesus is a forerunner. He's a high priest. He's entered into the temple before us. He's a priest. Do you remember what he said? In the order of Melchizedek. Now, that might not sound shocking to you. I can tell by your facial expression that that doesn't keep you up at night. But for a Jew in the first century, there was one order of priesthood that was honoring to God. It was the order of the Levite. If you were going to be a priest, if you were a Jew and you were going to be a priest, you did not get to decide. You didn't like get to be like, uh, raise your hand in career class and be like, I want to be a priest, right? You could only be a priest. There, were, there was a box for what it meant to be a priest, right? You had to be Jewish, okay? You had to be Jewish. You had to be circumcised. You had to follow the law. You had to do a bunch of these things. But one thing you had to do was you had to be a Levite. Now, a Levite is one of the tribes, one of the families, one of the lines. You had to be related all the way back to this guy named Levi. Here's the problem. Do you know what tribe Jesus was from? He's from Judah. Now, you may not... Spend a lot of time around the Bible, but you may know, like, Judah. Well, that sounds familiar. That sounds important. That sounds, like, good. Right? And it is. In fact, um, there was a point in time where Israel and and the Hebrew people were just wrecking it. I mean, they're, they're people like us, so you know what we're really good at is we're just really good at destroying things, and so that's kind of what they're doing, and, and they, they fracture as a nation, and 10 tribes, the northern 10 tribes, go off and do their own thing, and they worship idols, and they distort uh, what God's called them to be and all that kind of stuff, but there's two tribes that stick it out, and you remember the two tribes. One of them is the tribe of Judah, right? And for a moment, if you're reading the story of the Jewish people, you're like, Ha-ha, they're gonna get it, they're gonna do it, and then, and then they're just like us, and they don't. But but the tribe of Judah, man, that was that was that was the royal tribe. That was the tribe of King David. King David, do you know King King David was the greatest king Israel had ever seen? And if you'd asked a Jewish person in the first century, King David was the greatest king the world had ever seen. Jesus was part of the tribe of Judah, but the problem, you see, if you're going to be a priest, you got to be a Levite, so the right of Hebrews says, but you know what, sometimes God does things that don't fit inside our box, and instead he says, oh yeah, 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 he's not a part of the tribe of Levi, but he's a part of Melchizedek. And if you are a first century person, you know a little bit about, the, about Melchizedek, but you probably know about as much as we know about Melchizedek, which is l- very little. Did you know outside, you know how many times outside the book of Hebrews, how many times the whole Bible talks, there's a lot of words here. Have you tried reading the whole Bible? There's a lot of words in this book, okay? How many times the, this whole book talks about this guy named Melchizedek outside the book of Hebrews? Twice. Once in Psalm 10, And it's a it's a messianic prophecy, it's a messianic psalm, it's 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 telling about, and then it tells us this one story, and it's a weird story, okay? You ready? It's in Genesis 14, it's a weird story. Okay? I'm just I don't have a lot of answers for you, I'm just gonna tell you it's a weird story. Okay? Abraham, you know Abraham, right? Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. You know him? I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Hey! Yeah, somebody knows it. Okay, here we go. That was not in my notes. Here we go. Uh, And that beautiful moment is on the internet for the rest of eternity. Um, uh, So Abraham, right? Um, Abraham is this guy that God's going to work through, and he's going to make the Jewish people out of Abraham, okay? If you weren't here last week, there weren't a Jewish people. Um, God chose one guy, said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, the one person, okay? At this point in time, you know how many kids Abraham had? Go Ducks. Zero. Okay? Zero. He had zero kids. Right? God hasn't given him all these prophecies. All these things are still out in the future. And Abraham is a wealthy and powerful man. You may think of Abraham as like this kind of poor um, pauper who's kind of wandering around the desert. But we know from Scripture he was a wealthy and powerful man with a lot of, of servants, which turned into an army. And he went to war. At one point in time, he went to war with five kings. Kings of city states, right? They weren't like whole nations. That's not the way the world existed back then. He went to war with five kings and he whooped every single one of them, right? Like Oregon cow whooped them, just whooped every single one of them, okay? He whooped them all. And then he. Out in the desert. And for some reason, he takes 10% of everything he just plundered. Melchizedek didn't go to war with him. Melchizedek didn't protect his flank. He didn't like send supplies to him, but he takes a tenth of everything that he has and he gives it to Melchizedek. Now in ancient Near Eastern culture, this is a way of showing someone's superiority to you. It's like a tax of saying like, I'm gonna be in submission to you. You are great. Now this is the dude who just whooped five kings. Melchizedek. He gives him and then Melchizedek blesses him. Here's what we know about Melchizedek. He's from this town. Um, It says in Hebrews, right, and in the English Bible, it says Salem. Um, It'd be kind of more closely pronounced uh, Shalom, right, Uh, which is actually the same root word as a word you may have heard before, a word uh, Shalom, right? And it's this town, he's a king from this town called Shalom, this town called Peace, uh, you've heard of this town. You may not know. It's not that town over there. He did Melchizedek didn't walk from over here and then walk all the way to the Middle East, right? Is this town? Took on a different name a little bit later. It was called Jerusalem. Right? So so there's this king. We get this king, this Gentile king, right? He's not a Jew. He's not a Jew. He's he's a Gentile king from this kind of like pre-Israel capital city, the city that's going to become incredibly important to the Jewish people, that's going to to be the capital city and have the temple and be the center of worship and be the center of culture and be the center of what it means to be Jewish, he comes to this town, and he's a name. And in in the original Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's it's kind of, um, it's unclear how we should understand his name. Um, it's unclear how we should understand his name because there's a couple things we could do with it. His name could have been Melchizedek, right? And his name could have been Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is actually two words, Melchi and Zedek, and it means, um, as it says in Hebrews, my king is righteous. or, or sorry, uh, the righteous king, the righteous king. But it also looks like it could mean um, my king is righteous, so Melchizedek might have actually just been a representative for someone else. We, don't, we know so little about this guy. We don't know where he came from. We know he's the king of Salem. We know he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, okay? And this may not seem like important to you and shocking to you, but he's not a Jew. And yet, do you see, even the writer of Hebrews says this. Look at verse 7. Look at what it says. This has this got to be like the most shocking thing to a first century Jew. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. They weren't unfamiliar with priests. There were a lot of priests in ancient Near Eastern culture. Scripture talks about, Scripture gives credit to people, calling them priests of a lot of different things. But this is the only example in all of Scripture of someone who is not a Jew being labeled a priest of our God. For our God. It had to blow their mind. It's fascinating to me. I just wish, uh, you know, one day we're going to get to heaven and I'm going to have a lot of questions. One of them is going to be like, what's the deal with Melchizedek? Like, did, did, like, how did Melchizedek become, how did Melchizedek even know about God? How did he become a priest of the Most High God? Did he like sacrifice? Did he like have the law like later God's going to give them in the Exodus? Did he have like did he have like sacrificial practices? Like what happened to him? What happened to the rest of his family? Did they just like everybody else just kind of their whole family went sideways and everything just kind of burned to the ground like the Northern Kingdom? So much we don't know, but but what we do know is that. Even when God says, this is how you be a priest, there are moments in time when God does something that doesn't fit inside our box. That God uses a Gentile, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person to be the priestly line with which the Jewish Messiah would come to bring life and freedom to all of creation. Sometimes, God works in ways that just don't make sense. We create these boxes. We say, God, this is how you're going to do it. And God shows up, and he says, actually, you know, I, I kind of, I think I'm going to do something different. You remember the story of um, Peter, Acts 10? Peter, um, if, you, if you don't know anything about Peter, uh, Peter never had a quiet thought, Okay? Um, if you told Peter, just like go sit in a corner and think to yourself, Peter's brain would just go, blah, blah, like he didn't know how to do it, right? If, if Peter had a thought, it just came out, right? And so there's this moment in Acts 10 where God comes to him and he has a vision and, and God shows him and he lays down this blanket and it has all these animals and, and by Jewish law, these animals are unclean. And you know who labeled them unclean? Do you remember this? Who, who called them unclean? God called them unclean, okay? So just understand the whole concept, okay? God says, these animals are unclean. The animals come down. God says to Peter, he says, take and eat. I think, it doesn't say it in the text. I think Peter thought God was testing him. I think Peter thought he nailed it. I think God, I think Peter thought, ha, ha, ha. Oh, I got this one. I got this one. I may have messed it up when you called me the devil, but I got this one. Not gonna eat it. You said, unclean. Don't touch them. You know what Peter says? He says, I would never. I would never eat unclean. Things you have called unclean. And then he wrote what God's answer is to him? Why would you call something unclean that I've called clean? And Peter's brain had to be like, what? You called them unclean. Now they're clean. Like, Peter has this way that he has to work in the world. And then God shows up and says, I'm not going to fit in your box anymore. i not going to fit in your box anymore. This isn't an old thing. This isn't just like a Bible-time thing when God shows up and he just doesn't fit in our boxes and we go, you know, and we go, oh, <laughs> they should have known, right? Why didn't the Pharisees know? They should have known, right? Didn't they read this? Didn't they read Isaiah 53? Didn't they see it? It says it right there. He's gonna be—he's gonna be silent as a lamb under the slaughter. He—he's gonna die. (laughs) Isn't that pretty obvious, right? Thing that still happens with all of us, because over time, long enough, we begin to create these images and these ideas and these rules for God. In a way that we can interact with God and the way that God interacts with the world. And, you know, if we put our 25 cents of prayer into the, the vending machine and we put our 25 cents of reading the Bible into the vending machine and we put our 25 cents of showing up to church in the vending machine and we put 25 cents of apologizing after we cuss someone out in traffic into the vending machine and then we push B12, the Snicker blessing bar falls out. Right? Because we've created a box for how God gets to work. In us, But sometimes, sometimes God's disobedient to our boxes. So what do you do when God doesn't fit in your box? You know, there was a, a time, not that long ago, I mean, it feels like a long time ago. <laughs> um, uh, some of you, I don't know, maybe you were alive in the 1800s. In the 1800s, there was a time where there was this thing in America that was going on. And it was sweeping across America, and it was transforming churches, and it was so controversial. I mean, I, I, cannot, I cannot express to you sufficiently how controversial this move of God that was going on throughout America in the 1800s was, um, except to say this, um, this church is historically a part of a thing called the Stone Camel Movement or the Restoration Movement. Okay? Um, in fact, if, if you go to Western, at the center of campus, the center building is called Campbell Hall. The reason it's called Campbell Hall is because when this church started the university, the first president we hired was the nephew of the Campbell of Stone Campbell. Okay, um, So we're, we're part of the Stone Campbell movement thing. Um, it was intended to be a unity movement. We'd say things like, proudly. Not the only Christians, but Christians only. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds good. It feels good coming out of my mouth, right? Not the only. No book but the Bible. No creed but Christ. Which is actually a creed. Right? This thing was sweeping across, and that thing actually was one of the contributing factors that caused our unity movement be ripped in half. It was so powerful, it was so controversial. And there were people that would adamantly say, God would never do that. You know what it was? Um, it was this saloon instrument. It was a saloon instrument. Like people started using tools that they used at saloons and churches, and you know what happens at saloons, don't you? People play cards. I grew up Nazarene. Nazarenes weren't allowed to play cards until like 1989. You know what people do at saloons? They drink. You know what people do at saloons? There's prostitutes at saloons. How? How could God ever use something that had been so defiled? You know what that instrument was? It's a piano. Piano. For a whole generation of people, they'd established a box that said, this is the way God works, and this is the only way God works, and if he doesn't fit in this box, it must not be God. You remember, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you don't have to admit it now, but it wasn't that long ago where there's a huge conversation going on in the church, and, and people would say, oh, you could never, you could never have church online. You remember this? <laughs> I remember um, there's a guy named Andy Stanley, and, and uh, he used to say, I mean, like 10, 15 years ago, um, he would say the biggest church in America is Oprah, and she has no parking problems, right? For some of you, um, Some of you who are young, Oprah used to have a TV show. Before she was just a production company. She used to have a TV show. It was revolutionary. It was a big deal. Right? I'm getting, I realize I'm getting old. I was, this is not important, but I'm going to tell you anyways. I was watching a, a little interview thing yesterday on college football. And if you're, if you're a high school student or college student, I apologize for just being a decrepit old man in this moment right here. Is They were asking the college students, how old do you have to be to be old? Like college athletes, right? right? And maybe you're a college athlete. And you think in your head, how old do you have to be old? Okay? And uh, the resounding number was this. Well, um, if you were born in the nineties, <laughs> so I, I I give up on life. Um, but there was a there was this incredible thing. God, do you remember? Do you remember this? <laughs> when COVID first happened the church in America single-handedly crashed Facebook for three weeks in a row. <laughs> Think about that. Isn't that insane? Sunday morning, I do a lot of tech stuff. When COVID first happened, the big panic wasn't getting cameras. It wasn't figuring out how to preach to a camera. It wasn't figuring out mass or no mass. It was, we tried putting on Facebook and all of Facebook crashed because so many people were having church Online, we'll all admit, church online, if you're watching online with us today, it's not the same as being in the room. Nobody's saying that. But what if God's wanting to do something in a way that doesn't fit into your box? Here's what I suspect that if you're serious about your faith and you're serious about pursuing God at least one time in your life in some monumentally massive way God is going to want to do something in your life or through you or around you that's not going to fit in your box. So The question is what do you do when God doesn't fit in your box? I'll be honest with you. I, I don't I don't have a lot of great answers besides just to be humble enough to recognize that if God doesn't fit in our box, maybe the problem is the box and not God. I've got a couple practical things. I want to end with this. I'll give you some practical things because I do want to give you something practical because I'm sure for many of you, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of um, uh, extremes of people saying, if you're not this way, then you're wrong. And if you're not this way, then you're wrong. And everyone's yelling back and forth because they're boxed on how they see the world. And so I just want to give you some, I'll just bullet points. I'll go through really quick of some practical things. If you see something in your life or in the world and you're wrestling with like I don't know how I feel about this. Like, is this is this God? Is this God doing something, or is this like the enemy just so slightly distorting something and twisting something? Because sometimes that line can be really thin, right? Between God doing something and the enemy distorting something to to, to, to destroy what God wants to do. So here, here's some quick bullet point things for you. The first one is this: is like read your Bible. Like be in the scriptures and not just the verses that affirm the things that you already believe. But like read all the scripture and maybe it will foster in us a kind of humility that will recognize that the God that we worship is bigger than we are. And that the way that he does things sometimes don't make sense to us. And a little bit of humility to trust and walk with him wherever he leads. Here's the second thing I'd say is, is if you're wrestling with some things, maybe you're even in a process of some deconstruction, is to do it in community. Let's do it in community. Um, there's a, an interesting observation about the New Testament. There's not a single spot in the New Testament that tells you to be a part of a church. Do you know that? No spot in the New Testament tells you to be part part. You know why? Because the Bible also doesn't tell fish to be in water. When you read the scriptures, it is so normative that we, the, the, the scripture writers, the, the, the New Testament writers could not fathom a world where you were not meaningfully and intimately connected with other believers because we need one another. We need to walk with another, struggle with one another, right? And, and, and to my second thing, right, is, is this, is we also need not just our three friends who agree with us, right? Uh, I wrote this. I put, "We need to seek wise counsel, right? If the only people you ask are the three people that already agree with you or the two people on Facebook or you watch the seven videos that already agree with the thing that you think, right? It's just a recipe for stupid. Um, it's what one pastor called, "It's designing a cul-de-sac of stupidity." You just get in the cul-de-sac and go in circles and go, "You think I'm right, don't you? You think I'm right? You think I'm right. You think I'm right. You think I'm right. You think I'm right, you think I'm right, you think I." Right. Which is basically what social media is, OK? Seek wise counsel. There's a story in scripture uh, about a Jewish king, and he's young, and he becomes king, and he's trying to figure out what his steps are going to be moving forward, and he gets all these counselors together in a room, and uh, the, there's a group of counselors, they're like all of his buddies, right? They grew up playing t-ball together, and, and he's king now, and he says, what should I do? And they said, ha, 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 you're the king, tax them, ha, ha build a bigger uh, uh, home, build bigger stuff, build monuments to you, you're the king, right? He's like, Whoa, kind of sounds like a good idea. And he's got some other guys there. They're his dad's counselors, they're old, right? You know, maybe a little hard of hearing. They move a lot slower. They don't speak with as much excitement. And they say, you need to be gracious to the people. Be kind to the people. Relent in the pressure that your dad put on them. And you know what he does? He listens to his four stupid friends and ignores the wise counsel and destroys a nation. We need people in our life who've gone the journey before us, who have wisdom to speak into us. Every single one of us has, can have people in our lives who can speak wise counsel to us. Here's the, <clears throat> the next thing. Be patient in reacting I heard, a, I, I heard a saying just a couple weeks ago, and I think it's so perfect, and it just rings so true with my experience in life. It said this, um, uh, time and truth travel together. And here's what they meant. If you leave something long enough, it'll show it for what it is. Right? If you, if you just leave something, right? If, you know, some of your gardeners, you plant some random seeds. My kids, we, you know, um, sometimes we'll go to Burgerville, and Burgerville likes to make you feel a little bit better about the choice you make, so they give you little packets of seeds and be like, save the bees, right? And what happens is when you plant the seeds, you have no idea what's going to be in the seeds. But until they sit in the ground, until they start to kind of pop up and they start to show themselves, they show themselves for what they are. Sometimes when there's things going on in this world that we don't know and people are saying, this is of God or this is of the devil, sometimes we just need to be patient enough to wait and see what fruit shows up because the fruit will always show. The fruit of the Spirit will always show in people who are filled with the Spirit, right? Here's the last one. I mean, this probably, I guess this could have been one, two, three, four, five, and six, is pray, is pray. You know what Peter was doing in Acts 10 when God showed up to him to declare he was going to do something that wouldn't fit in Peter's box? He was praying. When we till the ground of our, till the ground of our soul in prayer, It prepares a lush and good place for harvest of God's spirit to work in us. When we don't do the hard work of removing the rocks and tilling the soil and seeking God and watering the soil of our souls, we should not be surprised when nothing grows. But when we do the hard work and we pursue God in prayer and fasting and purposefully and aggressively committed one to another, walking with one another, encouraging one another, seeking counsel and wisdom in humility from one another, in those moments, God shows up and he speaks. You know, it's rare that God yells And unless we do the hard work of quieting our soul in prayer, it will be hard for us to hear amongst all the noise of this chaotic world what he's doing. So if there's something in your life God's doing, you're not sure God's doing, maybe God's calling you to something crazy, and it doesn't fit in the plan you had for your life. You know, you, I was going to go to school and I'm going to do this and I'm going to finish this and I'm going to take this career and I'm going to go in the spot and this is what my life's going to look like and God wants to do something in your life that doesn't look like the box you created. Be quiet in prayer. Surround yourself with community that will walk with you wherever God leads you. Seek wise counsel and be patient and trust that he is good and that what he wants to do is bring life and redemption and hope and transformation through you. So I pray, I hope, I desire is that we might be a people who are patient enough to see the fruit of God in our life, who are humble enough to hear God speaking through others, into us who are disciplined and devoted enough to a life of prayer that we would hear God when he speaks.